Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, the verses 8 through 11. Let us hear God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of them hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Thus far the reading of the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, one of the great weaknesses of the church today is her apparent willingness to compromise, especially on matters relating to doctrine and morality. But it may surprise you to know that the modern church is not alone in this. Already in the first century AD, some of the churches were guilty of this exact thing. And one such church was the church at Pergamos. Although this church was generally quite faithful, and the Lord even commends them for this, It had compromised with the world and false teaching. Dr. Joel Beakey in his commentary in Revelation writes this, and I quote, In Ephesus, the church had rooted out heretics, even though her love for Christ was waning. But in Pergamos, heretics were tolerated in the name of love. Thus, the church in Pergamos reversed the problem that faced the Ephesian church. Pergamos had a record of loving zeal for the cause of Christ, even to the point of suffering martyrdom. But her doctrinal purity and spirituality were on the decline. Her moral power was broken as she gave in to the worldly spirit of compromise. With this in mind, and the help of the Lord, let's look at this letter under the theme, Christ's Letter to a Compromising Church. And we'll consider, first of all, the nature of this compromise, and secondly, the solution to this compromise. In this letter, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses the church at Pergamos. Pergamos was located about 55 miles north of Smyrna. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was also a very large city, although not as large as Ephesus. It was the site of many magnificent buildings and a huge library that housed some 200,000 volumes. It was second in size only to the library in Alexandria in Egypt. The Greek historian Pliny called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia Minor. It was also a major religious center. 
In this city, there were temples to many Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. There were also temples to various Roman emperors whom the people worshipped as a god. In fact, in 29 BC, Pergamos was the first city in Asia to receive permission to build a temple dedicated to the worship of a living emperor. And this is why our Lord refers to this city in this letter as the place where Satan dwells and the place where Satan's throne is, because nothing is more satanic than worshiping a man and a wicked man at that, rather than the true and the living God. Well, needless to say, the worship of the emperor posed a considerable challenge for the Christians who lived there. And that's because the worship of the emperor was regarded as a sign of loyalty. And because they refused to worship him, the Christians in Pergamos were regarded as disloyal. In fact, they were persecuted. No one did business with them, and they couldn't do business with anyone else. Some of them were fined, others were imprisoned, and some were even put to death. In fact, our Lord refers to this in verse 13. He refers there to a certain Antipas, the Lord's faithful martyr, who was killed. And yet, despite this terrible persecution, the church at Pergamos remained loyal to her Lord. And Jesus says as much. He says, and you hold fast to my name. In other words, you remained true. You remained loyal to me. And you did not deny my faith. In other words, you did not deny your faith in me. You did not stop believing in me. The believers at Pergamos evidently refused to break under pressure. They refused to give in. They refused to do what the culture demanded of them. They stayed loyal to Jesus Christ and his word. But alas, not all of them did. And Jesus says as much in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now, Balaam was a false prophet from Babylonia. And he was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. And when that did not work, Balaam advised Balak to induce the children of Israel to eat food that had previously been sacrificed to their idols, and also to commit fornication with their women. And the plan worked. And something like this was going on in Pergamos as well. There were those in Pergamos, who, like those who followed Balaam, worshipped God, but they worshipped idols too. And they probably reasoned like this, why should we invite persecution? We know that the gods of Pergamos are not real, so what does it matter if we worship them too? We can worship the gods of Pergamos, and we can worship God at the same time, and we can all live in peace. Now the Nicolaitans we're also referred to in this letter, taught something very similar. We first encountered them in chapter 2, verse 6, in the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, we don't know very much about these people, but it appears that like those who held to the doctrine of Balaam, they taught as well that it was possible for Christians to worship idols and to worship God at the same time. 
Now in Ephesus, these people were called out and rejected, but in Pergamos, they were tolerated and even embraced by some. Now it goes without saying that that had serious consequences on the church there. One commentator writes this, and I quote, Theologically, they, that is the people of Pergamos, were antinomians. They were libertines. Doctrine mattered little, and behavior mattered even less. And as a result, with each passing day, the distinction between the church and the world became more and more blurred. The lifestyle of one was barely distinguishable from the other. Worldliness, compromise, and tolerance had rushed into this church like a flood, and she was on the verge of drowning. I'm sad to say the spirit of the church at Pergamos is still alive and well in the church today. Yes, still today, the church is compromising with the world. We see that especially in two areas, at least recently. We see it, first of all, in the area of women's ordination. From the very beginning, for hundreds of years, the church prohibited women from serving as office bearers in the church of Christ. And there's a good reason for that. It's because the Bible forbids it. But since the so-called women's liberation movement of the 1960s, that has changed. Now the vast majority of churches, including many evangelical churches, are ordaining women to the office of pastor, elder, and deacon. And it all happened very slowly and very gradually, probably in the hope that people would just get used to the idea and create less of a fuss that way. And so first, churches started ordaining women as deacons, and then a few years after that as elders, and now as ministers and professors of theology. And so why did that happen? Because many churches, in a vain attempt to remain relevant, have compromised with the world. The world says women are no different than men, and that's true. But then they go on to say that that means they should be able to serve the church in all offices alongside of men. And so many churches have given in to this. They've compromised. And churches that refuse to do so are considered to be backward-looking and stuck in the past and even misogynistic. Another area where the church has compromised in the last number of years is the area of homosexuality. Again, 40, 50 years ago, homosexuality was regarded universally for what it is, and that is a sin. But the world says it's not a sin. The world says it's simply an alternative lifestyle, and therefore we need to accept it and embrace it and even celebrate it. Now again, in a vain attempt to stay relevant and not to cause offense, many churches have given in. And they've welcomed gays and lesbians and transgendered people into the full membership of the Church of Christ and even into the offices of the church, including the office of minister. And many ministers today are now officiating at gay marriages and considering everything to be perfectly acceptable. Now, dear friends, we're not homophobic. We believe that all men and women, including gays and transgendered persons, are created in the image of God and therefore are worthy of respect and fair treatment, and all of them are welcome in every one of our churches. But we cannot embrace what the Word of God forbids. Instead, we must boldly and consistently urge such people to repent. And that is what the church has always stood for. That's what the church has always proclaimed. 
But in this area as well, the church has compromised. The Bible teaches that believers are in the world, but are not to be of the world. And yet the church today is becoming more and more like the world. And it's true, not just for liberal churches, it's true even for soundly biblical churches as well. I mean, just look at yourself. Ask yourself the question, have you compromised with the world? Have you allowed the world into your home? and into your heart? What do you watch on television? What websites do you visit on the internet? Where do you go for entertainment? How do you observe the Lord's Day? What kind of language do you use in the office and on the job site? What kind of music do you listen to at home and in your car? What kind of clothing do you wear? Let me ask you, are you compromising with the world today? Are you living and acting like the world? Are you different from the world? Or are you blending in with it? If so, then you're no different than some in the congregation of Pergamos. You've compromised. You're worshiping God, to be sure, but you're worshiping the idols of the world as well. And that, my friends, is a serious matter. In James 4, verse 4, James reminds us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And he adds this, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, what about you today? Are you a friend of the world and an enemy of God? If so, then God is against you. And he will come to you in judgment unless, unless you repent. And that brings us to our second point. After lamenting the fact that the church at Pergamos Contained in her midst, those who had compromised with the world, our Lord says to them, repent. Now the word repent means to do an about face. It means to go in the opposite direction. And this is what our Lord wanted the church at Pergamos to do. He wanted them to stop going in the direction that they were going in and instead go in the exact opposite direction. Now you notice that this word is directed not to those who had compromised, but rather to the entire church. He wanted the entire church to repent. And why is that? Why the entire church, when only a fraction of them were guilty of compromising with the world? Well, he wanted the entire church to repent because the church as church had tolerated those people instead of placing them under discipline. And then we learn here how seriously our Lord takes church discipline. A church is not a true church unless it disciplines its members. And to be sure, that's not not something we do quickly or easily. And even when we do it, it's a long process, but it must be done. At times, it is necessary. When as church we have exhausted every avenue to bring a person or persons to repentance, then we have no choice but to place that person under discipline. Now some object to this and they say that discipline is unloving. Better, they say, to just accept these people as they are and love them through whatever sin they're committing in the hope that eventually they'll come back and they'll be where they need to be. But my friends, that's trying to be wiser than God. 
It's trying to be wiser than the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given the church the key of discipline for this very purpose. Besides, this is precisely what was happening in Pergamos. They too thought that the most loving thing to do with their members who had compromised with the world was just to keep on loving them, to tolerate them, to give in a little bit in the hope that eventually they might come around. But my friends, they were wrong. The fact is, to administer discipline is the most loving thing a church can ever do because it indicates how much the church cares for that person's soul. If the church did not care, she would just let everyone live and act as they pleased and ultimately damn their own souls to hell. But we don't do that with our children, do we? Imagine your child did something wrong. And instead of disciplining them, you just hugged them and kissed them and told them what wonderful children they were. Well, what would happen? Well, your child would grow up to be a monster, an undisciplined brat that no one likes. And it's no different in the church. The church not only may, but must exercise discipline, or it is not a true church. And this is why our Lord urges the entire church at Pergamos to repent. Not just those who were compromising with the world, but also those who refuse to put them under discipline. And if they do not repent, then what? Jesus says, I will come to you quickly. Now that verb come here refers to coming in judgment. Unless the church at Pergamos places her erring members under discipline, the Lord, even though she was suffering under persecution, will come to her in judgment. And that's confirmed by what follows. After telling the church he will come, the Lord adds, with the sword of my mouth. Now significantly, this is how the Lord identifies himself in verse 12 at the beginning of the letter as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what does this mean? What's this referring to? Well, the word sword here is a metaphor for judgment. For the believers at Pergamos, this sword was a great comfort because it assured them that although the Roman government was wielding its sword against them, he held the ultimate sword, meaning he would not allow even the great power of Rome to harm them without his permission. But, the un, but for the unbelievers and the heretics at Pergamos, this sword was a great terror. For by means of this sword, our Lord would come and punish them. It's like our Lord was saying, I will do what the church has failed to do. The church has failed to come with the sword of discipline, so I will do it myself. I will come with the sword of my mouth the sword that comes from my mouth, and I will judge these heretics myself. Now, what is the sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ? Well, clearly, this is not a literal sword. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't have a literal sword coming out of his mouth. This is a metaphor for the word of God. Christ's word is a powerful weapon. It cuts like a two-edged sword. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, we read that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry says the fact that this sword has two edges means, and I quote, there is no escaping the edges of this sword. If you turn aside to the right hand, it has an edge on that side. If on the left hand, you fall upon the edge of the sword on that side, it turns every way, end quote. And isn't that true? How often have you not heard a sermon that addressed a particular sin in your life and it cut like a knife, didn't it? It convicted you and it brought you, hopefully, to repentance. Well, this is the weapon that Christ will use to judge the heretics at Pergamos. He will use the sword of his word. He will use his holy and infallible word to convict them, to prick them in their conscience and to convict them of their sin which will either bring them to repentance or it will harden them in their unbelief. Now this has huge implications for preaching, doesn't it? The aim in preaching is not to make people feel good about themselves. It is, in fact, the exact opposite. It is to make people feel bad about themselves. So bad, in fact, that they come to the realization that they cannot save themselves, that they need a Savior, and that Savior is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John MacArthur writes this, and I quote, Sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the Word of God. The goal of the church is not to provide an environment where unbelievers feel comfortable. It is to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so as to be saved. The point is, the Lord will come in judgment against all those who compromise with the world. But he will also come in blessing for those who do not. For notice what Jesus says next. Our Lord makes two promises in verse 18. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, manna was the name that the people of Israel gave to the food that mysteriously appeared on the ground every morning while the people of Israel were living in the wilderness. John chapter 6, our Lord says that this manna points to him. You may remember how after our Lord fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two small fish that the Jews came to him the next day and said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them manna. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In a response to this, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When they asked him to give them this bread, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so this manna refers to Christ. And it's hidden because in the Old Testament, Moses and Aaron were commanded to take some of the manna and hide it away in the ark as a memorial to future generations. The manna that Christ gives is also hidden. It is hidden in him and hidden from the rest of the world. The point is Christ will give his people this hidden manna. The commentators differ as to what this means practically, but the historical context suggests it refers to the strengthening grace of Christ. 
As we've already observed, the believers at Pergamos were suffering persecution. And as a result, they were weak and tired. And now their Lord comes to them with the promise of his strengthening grace. Joel Beeky says this, Just as God provided the manna as food for the children of Israel to sustain them in the wilderness, so Christ promises to sustain his people in their pilgrimage through this world if only they are faithful to him. But that's not all. Christ also promises to give his people a white stone. Now, commentators differ widely on the meaning of this stone and whose name is written on it. But most likely, the stone represents Christ. He is like a white stone in that white is the color of purity and holiness. And he's like a stone because a stone is imperishable. It lasts forever. And that means that the name of the stone is his own name. And it's called a new name because in glory, the believer will discover new things about Christ that they had not realized before. And it's called a name that no one knows except him who receives it because this name is revealed only to believers. Now, if that's correct, and I believe it is, then Christ here is promising the believers at Pergamos the very best gift of all. He's promising them himself. And he's assuring them that all that is in him, the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, it's all theirs, and therefore they need not fear. He will be with them. He will protect and lead and guide them, and he will love them to the very end. And since that is so, what an incentive we have here not to compromise with the world. I know this isn't easy, it's not easy to remain distinct and separate from the world. But our Lord here assures us that those who do will be richly blessed. They will receive from his hand the hidden manna and a white stone on which a new name will be written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Oh, my friend, do you desire that for yourself? Then keep on fighting and striving to overcome. Flee from the world. Don't compromise with the world. Be different. Be distinct. Devote yourself entirely to the Lord, to His glory, and to His service, and all these things and more will be given to you. Oh, do you believe that? Our text passage today repeats the expression found in every one of the seven letters to the churches. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Lord here is asking whether we have a spiritual ear to hear and to believe, to embrace and to live out of all that he has said in his holy word. My friend, do you have such an ear? Amen. Dear friends, it's a great joy for us to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station. And if you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. We'd ask that you please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. And that's spelled L-E-H-M-A-N in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at bannerofTruth at frcna.org. 
And when you write to us, please include the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Prunk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace. And we hope it may be a rich blessing to you and your family. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages, but you can access and download all of our messages at our website at BannerOfTruthRadio.com. That's BannerOfTruthRadio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.